These are the prayers of our life. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you. God, would you help me? Uh, God, I'm looking at my kids. I think they're going down the wrong road. Um, I need you to do something there for my son or for my daughter. Uh, Lord, here's someone that I care deeply about. They don't feel well. I'm, I'm really concerned. These are the prayers of our lives. How do I know that you're real? I need to know that you're real. God, I think, I'm, I think I am aware that I am a sinner. God, I don't know what to do. I don't know whether to turn right or left. How, what, should I do this or should I do that? Help me to decide. Guide me, lead me. Help, help me figure that out. I don't know what the right thing to do. I don't want to make a mistake. These are the prayers of our lives. The crucifixion is God's shocking answer to all of the prayers of your life. What a thing for him to do. There is this mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, measurable need inside you and I. And the estimate of the answer to his prayer is that the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, the creator of all things, who knows all, is in all places, is all holy and all wise and all powerful, would be pinned to a tree. That is his ultimate answer to the needs that are in your life. Today, I want to ask one singular question. Why did Jesus die? God, I know you wanted to fix this thing, but you're God. Of all the things you could have possibly done, of all of the means by which you could have sought to fix this thing, all of these needs in us, all of the stuff, of all of the ways you could have done that, why you pinned to a piece of wood? Surely you could have thought of something different. Why that? N.T. Wright describes this, and it's harrowing. He says, it's such a barbaric and brutal form of execution. The experience of the crucifixion is simply terrifying. It is the stuff of nightmares. It is fully realized trauma, not just to the person pinned. It is fully realized trauma to anyone around it and commonplace for anyone living in Judea or Galilee. It would leave you with irrepressible memories of naked, half-dead men dying for days, covered in blood and flies. Flesh being gnawed at by rats, their members being ripped by wild dogs, their faces pecked by crows, mocked and jeered by sadistic sociopaths who had found a legal way to express the evil in their hearts, torture. Meanwhile, those who care about you, your family and your friends, stand there weeping uncontrollably, helpless to do anything. That's what we're talking about. If there is one thing we can be certain of, it is this. Jesus Christ was crucified. There is not an academic or a theologian worth their salt who would deny this as an historical fact. 
There was a man called Jesus of Nazareth, historically, and he did die a slave's death on a Roman crucifix. But the odd thing about this violent death is that all around the world on this very day, Christians everywhere do not view the death of Jesus as some pathetic ending to his ministry, as some shameful, what a pity. That Christians would say, you know, great ministry, appreciate profound things that he spoke, appreciate that we can see the transformation and difference that he made as he spoke hope, and certainly the supernatural was incredible, but pity about the end. What a shameful finish line. Anything but, that is not the attitude or the expression of Christians around the world today. The death of Jesus on the cross is a part of his messianic vocation. It is the job that he came to do deliberately. Jesus himself deliberately embracing that to usher in the kingdom of God. How are we to make sense of that? Death deliberate. Not just any death, but this nightmarish humiliation on a wooden cross on purpose. Somehow this is a good thing. Good Friday. Again, it begs the question, why did Jesus die? My best guess is that in a room this size and those listening online in Alma, that we have probably a, a good percentage of people who would say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. If that's not you today, I'm so delighted that you would be here, that you would be in his presence. And I trust that God is going to do something in your life today and speak to you directly. But my best guess is for those of us perhaps who've picked up the Bible once or twice or gone to church, you might hazard a good answer to that question. And it would be, well, the reason why I think that Jesus died is for our sins. It's a good answer. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Over the next few minutes, I'm going to push a little further into that question. I want to ask the same question, Jesus, why did you die? But I want to bring to bear two significant variables that would have been absolutely commonplace were you somebody that lived at that time and in that place? Two variables that would have impacted your life and your common, normal experience sort of on an everyday level that perhaps I think we're so far removed from we don't really think about it. The first variable is to ask the question like this, Rome, why did Jesus die? And if you lived in that place at that time, you were keenly aware of the presence of Rome. Did Rome kill Jesus? Did a Roman governor kill Jesus? Was it this guy by the name of Pontius Pilate? The Pharisees came with a request. Is it his fault, Pontius Pilate? Did he agree to their request? And where does that fit into the assertion, and the Bible makes this claim, that what Jesus was doing was actually a climax of his ministry that would usher in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. How do you balance that? Rome. Well, people were crucified and executed by Rome for one reason. Because they were rebels of Rome. That's why they did that. 
It was a powerful symbol all throughout the Roman Empire. And it was way more than just a way to deal with people that they didn't like or some undesirables. It degraded and it humiliated human beings to the maximum. It said loud and clear, we're Rome, don't mess with us. We're in your country and we can do whatever we want to anyone that we like. We are absolutely sovereign Rome. You talk about God, I'll tell you who's God. Caesar is God. That's the statement. And there's nothing you can do about it. Any attempts of yours will be puny attempts. And this is what happens to anyone that stands against us, anyone that disagrees with us. And it is, without a doubt, a crystal clear and frightening message. And anyone living during that period of time lived under the shadow of that threat. So is that what Jesus' death was? Well, I don't think that anybody thought that. I don't think the Pharisees thought that Jesus was a threat to Rome. I don't think Rome thought that Jesus was a threat to Rome. The word that was given to people who tried to give a revolt was zealots. I don't think anybody looked at Jesus Christ and said, he's a zealot. He's this guy who's out there talking to people, trying to drum up trouble, some sort of violent revolution. Certainly people looked at Jesus and they saw what he could do with some bread and some fish. And they thought, my goodness, if that's what he can do with bread and fish, we ought to put him on a horse and put a sword in his hand. And Jesus said, no, I know what the Father has called me to do. And it's not that. We look at the life of Jesus. There's nothing political about it at all. There's nothing military about Jesus Christ at all. He certainly was not a revolutionary threat. What about Pilate? Fascinating what history has done with Pilate. They have tried to depict him as a saint. They have tried to depict him as a bully. Was he just some guy who had all the power and he was flaunting it around? Was he a weak bully? Is he a, a guy who didn't ask for the situation and it was sort of thrust upon him and he just found himself between a rock and a hard place, the agenda of Rome and the agenda of these religious Hebrew leaders, these Sadducees and Pharisees who were pushing stuff and trying to nudge him and influence him. Historians have turned Pilate into a hero. Historians have turned Pilate into a saint. This moment where he washes his hands as though none of this is his fault. I don't see that reflected in any of the four Gospels. Washing his hands, I think, was an empty, contemptuous symbol, pretending he could hide from his responsibility for something that absolutely lay completely within his power. He didn't want to rescue Jesus because he was interested in justice. I don't think that was on his mind at all. You don't see that anywhere. He didn't want to rescue Jesus because he saw Jesus as being a good guy, and he kind of did. He didn't look at Jesus and say, I don't think this guy's done anything wrong. In fact, I think he might be a very good man. He might even be a holy person. We don't see that in Pontius Pilate at all. He was responding to a request to kill him, and he tried to deny the request, and in the end, he couldn't deny the request. Why? Because the request from these Pharisees and Sadducees was actually quite clever because they came to him and they pushed this agenda. It's ingenious. They said to him, Pontius Pilate, you have to do something about a man who claims to be a king. He says he's king of the Jews. 
And all of a sudden, Pontius Pilate is in this position where he has to go, I can't ignore that because anyone who claims to be king is usurping the authority of Caesar. And if I don't do something about that, guess whose head's going to be on the chopping block? Well, that would be mine. Rome, why did Jesus die? Two reasons. Because Pilate was putting cynical power games before justice. And he would. Pretty much any time the Pharisees and Sadducees asked anything of him, he would just say no because he could and he hated them. It was power games. Secondly, because Pilate placed self-interest before both power games and justice. Second variable. That which would have been absolutely common to any person living there at that time and in that place. Israel. Why did Jesus die? More specifically, what I mean by that is what I just mentioned a minute or two ago. These spiritual leaders, these Pharisees and Sadducees, these scribes, and then also the people, like the country, the mass of people who had been exposed to Jesus, His messages of love, His deliverance and healing, what were they going to say about the death of Jesus? Well, the spiritual leaders... We read time and time again in any of the four Gospels where they would have this episode with Jesus and it would say they would walk away plotting, how can we kill Jesus? Why? What was the problem with Jesus? They were certainly after his life. They were after blood. Why would they be like that? Well, they claimed that Jesus was leading everyone astray. Centuries prior, the prophet by the name of Isaiah He prophecies about this Messiah that would someday come. And he says, this Messiah will be rejected by the people of God, by the chosen people, by the nation of Israel. That happened on two occasions. The first one is this. They accused Jesus of being in league with Satan. Not a small thing to do. And they did it publicly. Jesus has this occasion where he heals and delivers this man who was possessed by a demon. And everybody sees this and they're blown away because they saw him before and they saw him afterwards. How could Jesus have done this? And look at what it says in Matthew chapter 12, verse uh, 23. He said, this is the crowd. They said, could this be the son of David? That's code for could this be the Messiah? Because they knew that the Messiah would come from the lineage of King David. Could this be the son of David? Is this the Messiah? And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they see the whole crowd looking at this, and they can't cope with this. Uh Uh-uh. We don't want you talking about Jesus like that. Look at their response. Verse 24. It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now, those words are as nasty as they get. There's the rejection that Isaiah prophesied about centuries prior. The spiritual authority of Israel... In that formal occasion, officially and publicly disclaimed Jesus Christ. And they accused the authority and the expression of his ministry as actually being satanic. That's hardcore. That is an outright rejection of him as Messiah. What's really interesting is, after that accusation and that rejection from the spiritual authority of Israel, did you know this? Jesus never did another public miracle. He never did one more. 
Every miracle that he did afterwards was done in private. Maybe just a few disciples or with the person, just him and the person, he healed them, or maybe with some family members behind closed doors. He stopped doing public miracles as evidence of who he was. Rejected. Second occasion where he was rejected was this toin cost between Jesus and Barabbas. And Pilate, after washing his hands, looks at the nation of Israel, this mob of people who have seen what Jesus has done and have listened to what he has said. The same group of people who just hours beforehand, just a few days, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and they begin to roll out the red carpet because they're throwing down their coats and they're throwing down palm leaves and they begin to shout at the top of their voices, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, which interpreted means this is our Savior. It literally means, here He comes, save us. Please save us. That's what they're shouting. And in this moment with Pilate, now they begin to shout something very different just hours later. And they begin to scream, crucify him, crucify him, kill him. And then they say something that you would think would be unthinkable for Hebrew men and women. They shout at the top of their lungs, we have no king but Caesar. That is the second outright rejection Fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah centuries prior. Two emphatic rejections from the spiritual authority of that day and from the people of the nation that were chosen by God. We can't trust this man. You can't trust what he's doing. Displaying this power, this authority. Do you remember what he did in the temple? He actually did it twice. He went in and they were making money off the backs of impoverished people who wanted to come and worship God and make a sacrifice. And he comes in and he takes these tables and he just chucks them and the money goes flying. He did it twice. They hated that he did that. In the temple, they loved the temple. The temple was iconic. It was the symbol of the presence of God. That's our temple. Don't usurp the things that we're doing in the temple. Leave it alone. He's probably opposed to the Torah. One time he read and he interpreted in a way that we didn't like because he pointed it back towards himself. He said he would destroy the temple. How could anyone say such a thing? And then he said he was going to rebuild it again in three days. He's out of his mind. That's completely absurd. We're Pharisees. We're Sadducees. We're the political and religious leaders of the day. And he hasn't endorsed us. He should have done that. He's misinterpreting the Torah. He's stirring up the people. He's just like his cousin John. He's a troublemaker. He's a false prophet. He's performing magic tricks. He's leading Israel astray. It's this weird mix of two worlds. Rome and Israel. And they know that they need to accuse him in both. They need to find fault in Jesus so that Rome will kill him. They need to find fault in Jesus so that the people of Israel will agree with his murder. Here's their motive. It could not be laid out more plainly. It's like night and day. John 11. Chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So Jesus has to be eliminated 
He's putting everything at risk. Israel, why did Jesus die? Three things. Jesus is a false prophet. He's leading the people astray. Secondly, his actions and his claims, especially around the temple, they're unacceptable. And thirdly and lastly, he said he claimed to be the son of God. And that's blasphemy. Is that the reason why Jesus died? I think that's probably the reason why the common man on the street thought that Jesus died. That is certainly the reality of what was happening in that culture, in their politics, at that time, and in that place. It represents the fears and insecurities. And Jesus not only faced that around what we're talking about today, his death, Jesus actually faced all of those variables and dynamics pretty much every day of his life and his ministry. That stuff was pushing and nudging from different angles at him all the time. I have to ask one more person. Jesus, what is your own view of your own death? Jesus, what do you think about your own life and your own death? Jesus, why did you die? And perhaps one of the best places to see the answer to this question is in what is simply known as the Last Supper. Final mean, a final meal for Jesus and these disciples. And please hear me, these disciples that he just loved. He loved them dearly, deeply. The meal was traditionally called the Passover meal. Today is Passover. And that is a traditional meal that is filled with meaning, deep, deep meaning for any Jewish person. And the purpose of it was to commemorate the deliverance of the nation of Israel out from under the thumb of Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. It's what's simply known as the Exodus. Incredible miracle. Moses, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, moving into the desert and coming out of slavery and into freedom. That's the meal. Jesus takes the story and he fuses it with another story. His story. The story of his own life and the story of his coming death. God is not a spectator in the story. God is the central character in the story. He's not sitting on the sidelines. Jesus is sitting down with these disciples that he loves so dearly and he knows exactly what's about to happen, like right around the corner. And he's like, I'm going to explain to them my forthcoming death. I'm talking them to them about how the temple has become unraveled and undone. And how I'm going to present them an alternative to the temple. I'm talking to them about the sacrificial system that has been going on for centuries. Where people would come and they would purchase a bird or a dove or a pigeon or a lamb or an ox and they would make these sacrifices because of their sin and their guilt and this blood that would indicate life itself would be shed on their behalf as a switch, as a sacrifice, as a substitute, as an atonement that this had been going on for centuries and Jesus says, saying, I'm going to show you an alternative to the temple, I'm going to show you an alternative to the sacrificial system. It's not a sermon. It's not a passage of scripture from the Old Testament. 
He's going to convey this through a meal. He has pointed out that the temple has become corrupt. And he's showing them that the sacrificial system is about to come to an end. Something that has gone on for so long. This daily slaughtering of animals. This bloodshed for forgiveness. In this meal, he's giving them this alternative to the temple. This alternative to the sacrificial system. You ever met somebody who was just dying to tell you something? I think that's what's going on at the Last Supper. Jesus, it's like he's got something to say and he can't wait to say it. Luke chapter 22 says this. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. There's something that I want to show you here. Like, I really want to show you this. In Matthew, he actually says, and hear the language of commandment. He's like, take and eat. In Mark, he says, take it. This is my body. In Luke, he says, I want you to take this and to divide it among you. This is my body that is going to be given for you. This is the cup of my blood. He begins to talk about a new covenant. No one's ever spoken like this before. This is brand new revelation. In 1 Corinthians, he says, this is my body. Look at the commandment. It's, 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 it's forceful. This is the cup in my new covenant of my blood. He says, do this. I want you to actually do this. He says, I'm telling you. I'm going to show you right now what is about to come. What it actually means. It's imminent. It's happening in hours. And it's going to be incredibly weighty. It's going to change everything. What is about to happen is the means by which the kingdom of God is going to come from heaven to earth. And then he takes bread. And right in front of them, he tears it. He's about to identify his body with bread being broken. This is how I'm showing this to you. He says, do you see what's happening to this piece of bread? This is what's going to happen to me, to my body. And then he takes wine and he pours it out right in front of them. He says, do you see this being spilled? This is actually what's going to happen to my physical blood. It's going to be poured. He's identifying himself in this symbol, in this picture. And all of that is being applied to his forthcoming death. He is stressing once again, and look at the Old Testament picture of the Passover. What it means when God comes and rescues his people from slavery. He did this in Egypt, and now he's going to do it again globally. This is the fulfillment of God's great purposes. It is the climax of messianic action. But it gives the picture of Exodus a whole new meaning. It gives the Exodus story a brand new direction. His death is now to be seen as a larger picture of God's ultimate plan of redemption for everybody. Not just for Israel, but for the whole world. Everything is now moving in this new direction. The Exodus now, it just becomes a backdrop. Now there's going to be a new covenant where people will receive forgiveness of sins once and for all. And the exile and this pressure and this uh, slavery will be dealt with forever and forever. I want you to picture right now Jesus sitting with his disciples for the Last Supper. 
And I want you to picture them sitting closely together. What's the picture, that, the art that um, you always think of when you think of the Last Supper? Is that Da Vinci? You guys know the one I mean? Where they're all sitting on one side of a table, which is weird. <laughs> like, no, nobody does that, right? Like that, that picture is completely inaccurate. From, there would not have, they would have been sitting down. They would have been lying on their left-hand side. Your left hand was considered to be your unclean hand. You would have eaten with your right hand. And they would have been right beside each other. I want you to picture these disciples close together, sitting right there, sharing this meal together. This is the nucleus of God's plan of redemption. That's what it is. New covenant. Now I want you to pull up a seat. Would you do that right now? Would you come close to Jesus? I want you to experience closeness with Jesus right now in his presence. Not tomorrow, next month, like right now. Would you come close to Jesus? Would you imagine yourself right beside him, sharing this meal? I want you to now count yourself as a part of this nucleus of his plan of redemption. Because it absolutely is. You're the church. And knowing what tomorrow holds, he's speaking to his disciples that he loves. The point of all of this is he wants for them to understand the benefit of his death. He wants for them to grasp that. Do you see, church, the gift of this bread, the gift of this wine poured out? Do you see the gift of his body broken for you? Do you see the gift of his blood poured out for you, for your life? I want you to feel the weight of that. I want you to be deeply grateful in his presence, right beside him, counting yourself amongst the nucleus of God's plan of redemption. That's what we're doing right now on this day. I want you to appreciate fully the freedom and forgiveness that it offers to anyone who says, God, would you forgive me? I want you, when you partake in just a moment, to know that when you do so, this is what you're saying. I needed Jesus Christ to die on my behalf to set me free from slavery. And that you're saying that to heaven and to earth, to hell itself, I'm partaking in his broken body and in his blood that was shed on my behalf. Do you know what a sacred thing it is to break bread? I want you to know that what we're doing right now is a holy thing. It's not a light thing. It's not a trivial thing. It's not a funny thing. It is a noble thing and it is a holy thing. And this meal was also a way to remind them that the tyrant, the accuser, the liar, the father of lies, the deceiver, was about to be destroyed. Was it Rome? Was it a cruel empire? Was it the nation of Israel and these absurd religious leaders and a corrupt temple and a broken sacrificial system that had run out of heart and simply was functioning in a perfunctory manner. This meal that we're about to have symbolizes the death of Jesus Christ. He knew he was going to die, that he would die. From the Exodus story, he knew that he would become the Passover lamb.
please listen to this. He was about to defeat evil by allowing evil to do its absolute worst to him. That's what he was doing. That the tyrant, the devil, the liar, the accuser, the evil one, right out of Genesis, and this is the right language, that he was about to be crushed. So that you could be reconstituted. So that you could be transformed from slavery and death and sin and guilt into life and forgiveness and transformation and an eternity with Jesus. Church, would you agree? What a great God we serve. Amen? Would you take uh, the bread and the juice and go ahead and open that right now? Would you come before your Father humbly, repent of your sins, remember his broken body, Go ahead, let's partake of the bread together right now. And his blood that was poured out for you. Go ahead and partake, please. Church, we're going to respond and we're going to worship this King who came and suffered and bled and died for every one of us. Can we please stand?